we're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I am not Rima Musa, your ordinary host for this program. I am your editor, Evan Enzer. I work at a nonprofit organization called the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, and I'm also a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to think, write, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we talk about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be hosting the show today. As I previously mentioned, my name is Evan, and I'm a Class 5 fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. I graduated from law school almost two years ago now, and I've been working in tech policy since. As you can probably tell, I'm doing my best Rima impression this week. So I sat down with Albert Fox Kahn, the founder and executive director of the nonprofit where I work, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. We talked about Albert's career journey, our new research on free speech in video games, and the other work Stop is doing in the New York State Legislature. I could never be an adequate substitute for Rima, but I hope you enjoy my special guest-hosted episode of the Tech Policy Grind. Hey, Albert. How are you doing this morning? Another fun day in dystopia land. Mm -hmm. Uh, So many flavors of uh, government surveillance to, to juggle. I think you really just jumped into it right there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and and the work that you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is Albert Foxconn. I'm a lawyer based in New York City, an activist, a bit of a technologist. I'm the founder of the uh, Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. Uh, where I'm the executive director. Uh, also have a bunch of uh, what I like to call pretend professorships. So I'm a fellow at uh, Yale Law School's Information Society Project, uh, the Harvard Kennedy School's uh, Carr Center for Human Rights, and I'm a practitioner in residence in New York Law School's Information Law Institute. <laughs> lots, of, lots of different roles. I know you have a lot of work going on, and what's some of the work that you have going on at STOP? So STOP is a a relatively young organization, we're four and a half years old, but in that time we've grown really rapidly to become a full-service civil rights organization, drafting new state laws and city ordinances, fighting for their passage, bringing lawsuits against tech vendors and the, uh, the police and other government agencies, doing research reports on emerging technical uh, uh, threats to you know civil rights, like uh, some of our recent work on pregnancy panopticon and the way that new new abortion prohibitions are going to be enforced through uh, surveillance technology. It, every day is a bit of a, a bit of a mix mm-hmm. of, of those different uh, campaigns. A lot of the listeners to this show are early early to mid career technology policy professionals. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for people who are just starting out or looking to get into technology policy? Yeah, and I, I should I should say as full disclosure for anyone listening who doesn't know this already, Evan works with me uh-huh. every day at Stop, and you know this is something we've talked about a lot in the past because when I created Stop, people kind of looked at me like. It was absurd to have an organization focusing on this work uh, Mm -hmm. day in, day out. And so I took a really convoluted path where never joined the privacy or the the different like privacy professionals groups, never got any of the certifications, never went through 
those sort of more structural hoops. Instead, I took this trajectory that took me first from corporate law to helping to run a Muslim civil rights organization. That was in 2016 at the you know start of the Trump administration. And that work really sort of catapulted my career in the worst possible ways because I got to do incredible work because my clients were under such horrific attacks. I just bring this up to both say that looking at my career 10 years out of law school in the rearview mirror, I can almost see a coherent through line. But the truth was <laughs> I was oftentimes just choosing the opportunities that I thought would give me the best you know, chance to do the things I cared about or do the things that I thought would have an impact. I didn't really know until a month before I founded Stop that it was going to become my full-time job. Stop recently released a new report on trust and safety in the video game industry. And on this podcast, we just recently had an integrity engineer from Meta come on to talk about those same issues. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you found in, in that report. Well, and I should say that I didn't work on the report nearly as much as you did. So I, I feel like I should be interviewing you. But no, but I think this, just as a bit of background, part of the reason we wrote this report is that traditionally we've looked at video game regulation in the U.S. and in a lot of different countries around the world as being discrete from, you know, platform governance for social media, for other websites, and for the internet writ large, you know. And so we think that there's a underappreciated impact on civil society, on speech rights, on the ability to have a digital online community when we don't take video games seriously and don't take the impact of video game moderation seriously. Figuring out the optimal way to handle moderation and community protection on a social media platform like Facebook or mm -hmm. Instagram is really hard, but doing it on video game platforms is just as hard if we take seriously the premise that speech on these platforms matters. With a lot of gaming platforms, there's been a focus on having broad brush censorship uh, schemes designed to protect you know, children, protect users from historically marginalized communities. These schemes aren't working. You know, having a broad list of banned words, having these efforts to keep out hate speech, you know, in theory should be creating a more welcoming and inclusive space for individuals from those backgrounds. But instead, you know, these users, you know, you know, users of color, LGBTQ users, they're oftentimes the ones who are being punished mm -hmm. simply for referencing their own identity. I think this will just become a bigger issue, especially as we see more and more speech and organizing moving online and things like virtual reality. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the, the big themes we're seeing, that you can't, you know, cordon off gaming regulation and think of it as being a part when, you know, suddenly we find ourselves in 5, 10, 15 years, you know, living much of our digital lives on gaming platforms that are then used for everything from work meetings and productivity tools to online shopping and other things. If we truly have the type of you know 
expansive, immersive online life in VR that companies are betting tens of billions of dollars we will, mm -hmm. then that's going to require a far greater investment in, you know, protecting civil rights, protecting speech, protecting the power to organize dissent, to come together in religious communities, to come together in protest, to organize political campaigns, to do all the things that we want to have done in the public square in these gaming spaces. Do you have any solutions to this problem? I mean, this gets tricky. I mean, I, I think that, you know, personally, I, I think that a lot of this comes down to broader investments in contextually aware moderation practices, uh, community-driven uh, moderation practices, and things of that sort. I, I'm personally a bit wary of some of the filter bubble dynamics we see being put forward by, you know, platforms like Blue Sky. Mm -hmm. And I think that we ultimately have to recognize that, you know, there's going to be a fundamental trade-off between optimizing the internet to suppress, you know, unwanted, harmful speech on the one hand and optimizing it for, you know, uh, pluralism, for, you know, privacy protection, for security on the other. I'm hoping we'll see better integration of secure messaging and things like that into gaming systems. But what about you? Like what you, you've thought a lot about this. I, I almost think that a lot of the regulatory answers here are going to have many more unintended consequences on speech than benefits. Um, for exactly that same reason you were mentioning of when video game companies themselves try to moderate content online it ends up backfiring and hurting people of color and hurting people who are lgbtq and who are just trying to talk about their experiences in games i almost think that it needs to be a cultural solution more than a top-down government solution to actually like change how people behave and how people think inside of video games and, and i should just acknowledge the fact that we're both incredibly privileged, mm -hmm. you know, straight white cis uh, men who are able to at navigate these platforms with a huge degree uh, of privilege. And I think that, uh, you know, we, we should, of course, you know, as we do in the report, you know, high uplift and, and look to the, you know, the critiques being put forth by, you know, gamers of color, by women gamers, by trans and non-binary gamers, by those, you know, individuals who are being impacted most by these platforms. There is a broad divide in opinions. So it's a really tough situation. It is. And I'm definitely not the, the expert on these issues. Well, you literally wrote the book <laughs> we just put out. So that's the answer or something. But I, I reported, I reported what I found. Um, but the, one of the really interesting things that I found when I talked to, to, you know, real experts about this was that many of them agreed that hate and harassment is a massive problem on the internet and especially in video games. 
And they also agreed that the systems that are in place to address it are not the answer. So doing more of the same is not going to actually make anything better. We we do need to change our, our approach to this. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at a lot of the, you know, incumbent moderation systems, they feel like they're primarily there not to optimize the user experience or to optimize the quality of civic discourse in our uh, society, but rather to a create a you know legal shield to protect against liability for uh, bad conduct by users on the platform, and b to create a PR uh, you know token, uh, and, you know this uh, thing they can point to in all the media uh, pushback saying oh we take this very seriously here's what we've invested in, and meanwhile none of it has really been you know, effective, none of it has been shown to be, you know, equitable. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of these moderation practices are powered by really disturbing, uh, you know, workplace practices where, you know, uh, people are paid quite poorly to review just a constant stream of disturbing and appalling images uh, day after day after day. And that, you know, has taken a huge uh, you know, mental health toll on, on moderators. Mm-hmm. I, I remember reading the, the book Behind the Screen a few years ago, and I, I really recommend that to anybody who's interested in learning more about, um, you know, labor practices and the content moderation industry. So does Stop have any plans to put out more material about this this topic in the future? Well, Evan, yes, we do. <laughs> As you know, I just sent you a, a proof of the um, next white paper that's coming out on gaming. And this really looks at some of the um, civil rights questions that we were talking about with the regulation of speech content on gaming platforms, you know, reviewing the existing legal landscape, looking at a lot of proposed legislation that would dramatically reduce speech rights on gaming platforms, looking at, you know, a lot of these issues with uh, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, collectively extended reality convergence with, uh, you know, civil society and work platforms and what that's going to mean about the scope of uh, impact for moderation decisions on gaming platforms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they're really just calling for at a minimum harmonization of how we regulate gaming and how we regulate other other internet platforms. There's so much more we could talk about when it comes to video games and other online platforms, but I know that you are doing so much more work at Stop, and I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, at Stop, we're seeking to abolish the use of mass surveillance in New York City and New York State, setting a model for the rest of the country. But obviously, you can't ban what you can't see. And so we've been doing a lot to pull back the curtain and understand what technologies are being used now as a first step towards, you know, banning their use completely. But there are a number of technologies that we know enough about that we can already advocate for their abolition, even without having all of the details about how the NYPD is using them. So one of those is uh, facial recognition. And, you know, as part of the Ban the Scan campaign in partnership with Amnesty International and, uh, you know, 
dozens of groups here in New York, we fought for legislation that will uh, ban the use of facial recognition by police, by landlords, and by places of public accommodation like restaurants and theaters. Um, And we also see uh, a lot of momentum for banning other surveillance technologies at the state level. So um, in January, we uh, launched the Banning Big Brother uh, Surveillance Sanctuary State campaign. But perhaps the, the the biggest priority at the state level is to ban what are called geofence warrants. What geofence warrants are is a novel court order that allows police to identify every person in a geographic area, whether it it's a single room or an entire city. And we've seen them used to identify thousands of people at a time. Uh, and they, it, it's a really uh, broad digital dragnet in essence. And um, it's something that poses a threat to, you know, uh, freedom of assembly, to protesters, to religious communities, to abortion access, to gender affirming care for trans youth. Cause you know, you could just use one of these to identify everyone going into a medical facility. Uh, and New York is poised to uh, pass the f- uh, first ban in the country. We at STOP helped lawmakers write this legislation a number of years ago. It was the first bill introduced in the country. It's since spawned a number of mm-hmm. uh, copycat measures, and you know those are progressing as well. But I really hope we're the first to, to outlaw this technology completely. It's very exciting. I, I am very excited about the geofence bill. My parents live part-time in Utah, and that's one of the um, jurisdictions that's looking into at least some sort of regulation on this. Yeah, and it's really it's really stunning to see how you know a, a bill we wrote in New York and then partnered with uh, ACLU to make a national uh, model bill could just spread so quickly. I mean, I've been to Missouri to testify before lawmakers. You know, in Utah, unfortunately, it looks like um, the bill's being watered down quite a bit. Yeah, to, very much so. Uh, yeah, to uh, to not really go as far as we had hoped, but you know, we still see this momentum to you know outlaw something that really hadn't gotten much attention at all. You're based in New York, and I know that the New York State session is coming to an end in, I would say, about two weeks to a month. Um, it must be hectic for stop at the state level right now. What are some of the priorities before the before the end of the session? Yeah, I mean, we 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 have a lot to do and not a ton of time because New York has a part year legislative calendar and the budget went way over schedule uh, and ate into the time for bills like the ones we're pushing. I, I really do think that with concerted effort by um, you know, our partners in New York and across the country, we can pass this geofence ban. And one thing I want to make clear, this doesn't just put ban uh, reverse warrants like geofence warrants. It also bans police purchases mm-hmm. uh, of location data because one thing we've seen in a lot of jurisdictions is that police are able to abuse public funds to access data that they can't access through the court system. I just have a, a couple more questions before we, we sign off for today. For anybody listening who wants to get more involved with the work that STOP is doing, where can they look for opportunities to get involved? 
Yeah, please, uh, you know, visit our website, stopspying.org. And, and, you know, there there's forms to to volunteer, to get involved, um, to donate. You know, we are a, you know, small community-based nonprofit. And while we've grown quite a bit, you know, our funding hasn't grown to the level we need it to reach to actually you know, take on the scope of work that we should. And so we're constantly looking for ways to connect with new donors, new supporters. Um, and, you know, we also have a junior board where younger professionals can get involved, uh, you know, be part of the team, see uh, the work we're doing and help support that uh, both in person and remotely. And, and of course, you know, um, helping us amplify campaigns on social media, on, you know, other surveillance capitalism platforms is also a, a powerful way to amplify the reach of uh, our campaigns. Before you go, I know you have a busy day. It's a staple to ask guests on the show what they're reading or listening to right now. Uh, it's funny. Like, I, uh, Evan knows I ask every single person who applies for a job or internship at Stop the same question about what they're reading. Uh, for me right now, given the uh, uh, truly dystopian dynamics of real life, I am embracing the escapism that is uh, fantasy. So I'm reading the first book in the Wheel of Time series. I wasn't familiar with the Wheel of Time until the Amazon show. I gave it a shot and I just could not get into it. I, I, I would say uh, as someone who really didn't enjoy the Amazon show a huge amount, the, the book has been pretty captivating, but it takes a long while uh, to, to get into it. Okay, Albert, we have kept you here long enough. I want to thank you for, for joining us today. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see you off air in just a couple minutes. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Evan. Thank you all for tuning in. And, uh, you know, thank you to those of you who have the time to help support us with the, these campaigns going forward. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Evan Enzer, and I am not the host of this show. But this podcast wouldn't be possible without our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Rima Musa for your regular hosting duties, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator. Thanks to Mary Bagdasarian and Daniela Guzman Pena. And of course, thank you to Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time. All right, everyone, how was my Rima impression? <laughs>